Are you enthusiastic about playing and promoting the Star Trek CCG? Then join the Continuing Committee's Ambassador Program. Let me talk to them. I'm sure I'm more articulate than that. Send an email to flrazor at me.com or send a PM to flrazor on the message boards. Luaf's on a Troy, a daughter of the fifth house, holder of the sacred chalice of Reeks, heir of the holy rings of Medazad. We're always looking for new people to join the group. We're especially looking for new ambassadors in the South Central United States. Full ambassadorial status. Looks like it's back in that dress uniform. So send a message off to us today. Live long and prosper. Authorization required. Captain's log. The impossible has happened. Along this journey, we'll find a way back. Enter authorization code. We might have just discovered the first stable wormhole known to exist. Our mission is to go forward. It's just begun. There's still much to do. Still so much to learn. Security authorization accepted. Verified. Transfer complete. You're listening to An Hour with the Continuing Committee with your host, Charlie Plain. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the An Hour with the Continuing Committee for our third annual regional preview show for second edition. Uh, in today's episode, we are going to talk about second edition and all the different affiliations you might see during regional season that starts here in just under a month. Today I have a panel of three guests who are all veteran and experienced high-level players to discuss the affiliations, and I'm going to have them introduce themselves. Hello, my name is uh, Johannes Kaiser on the message boards. I've played ever since Fractured of Time uh, was released. Um, I've won British Nationals once, but apart from that, I always make the top eight or something like that, and then I lose out to one of the better players. Uh, uh, Kevin Yeager, uh, 2008 world champion, been playing since 2006. Um, I had the pleasure of, uh, of playing against Johans in the 2008 championship. Uh, try to make as many regionals as I can. Also had the pleasure of being on the design team as of late. Uh, and I've had the pleasure of doing this uh, regional broadcast all for years. Yeah, my name is Nathan Weininger. I go by the handle Nator on the message board. I've kind of been doing the podcast circuit lately, so I won't go too much into my history. But proud or glad to be along for the, with these great players. So Nate, Nathan plays in San Diego currently, uh, Kevin plays in Minnesota, and Johannes plays in Germany primarily. So we're trying to represent um, all over the world. Unfortunately, I couldn't book an Australian, and scheduling all, all those time zones would have been crazy. Anyhow, so let's jump in. Prior to today's podcast, I had each of our panelists rank the affiliations in order, using whatever criteria they wanted to rank them, uh, competitiveness, difficulty, uh, frequency of appearance, each of them ranked them from one to whatever. I took all of those rankings and combined them with some mathematical mojo, and we are going to discuss these affiliations from the lowest ranked to the highest ranked over the next hour or so. Number 17. Non-aligned. 
the non-aligned affiliation was ranked pretty consistently in the bottom of everybody's uh, rankings. So we're going to start with non-aligned. I'm going to start it off with you, Kevin. Tell me why you think non-aligned are going to perform so badly in this year's regional season. Because they have no allegiance to anyone. Oh, I know that's probably not the reason why. Um, uh, right now they just don't have a focus. Um, there's just nothing really there for them to do. Uh, they'll pull a little bit from here and there from everybody else, but, you know, that's exactly what the problem is, is that they pull from everyone else, but they don't do it themselves. So you're better off just whatever they can pull from some affiliation. is. If you want to pull from that affiliation to do it, you're better off just doing what that affiliation does. Um, so, you know, that's pretty much it for me right now on my thoughts on that. I think the Android deck is decent. Um, uh, the problem with it is you kind of need to have your god-opening hand to get it really moving off the ground. You know, you, you almost need to have an Energize in your hand so you can start playing those expensive people and hope that doesn't get destroyed early on. But it can be a good deck, but you really need to have uh, a fortunate draw and be lucky against your opponent to get moving. Well, then uh, to build on top of that, Nate, uh, you know, like you said, you, you need Energize, and even when you get Energize, you can't rely on it because there's good event destruction out there, and other affiliations utilize Energize more efficiently than Androids do. And then on the worst, the worst knock on the Android deck that, that, in my opinion, is the fact that it's weak against, you know, tragic turn kill piles and things like that. I mean, if you get in its face, it folds. Yeah, I pretty, I pretty much agree with the other guys. I think Android is probably the the best non-aligned uh, deck. Um, I mean, you can play Thieves, but I think that doesn't have that kind of uh, appeal for the casual player. I don't think they want to play with a bunch of random gatherer or thieves. So that's also something that would put put me off. And other than those two deck types, I think the best you can do with non-aligned is just go for the really good uh, non-aligned guys that you just splash into decks like Tolin and Sauron and see what missions you can do with them, but that's not really a focus deck. So, Johannes, let me ask you this. Do you think that if... And this is more of a, of a discussion for the specific affiliations, but I know there are, are certain affiliations that pair well with Androids. Uh, Cardassians, for example, have been played before, and Romulan Androids. So uh, maybe like a 50-50 deck, do you think that might perform better, or are they just too tough and too, too unreliable at this point? Um... Depends if you're talking about uh, Androids uh, in particular. I don't think you can really do a 50-50 deck because you, you need all the, the Androids in hand and you cannot dilute the deck too much. And as Kevin said, if you want to use another affiliation because you want to use some of those tricks, then usually it's better to just play that affiliation straight away. Yeah. Now, Nate, um, do the existence of dilemmas like quarry labor shortage and the seen and the unseen keep this affiliation down, or is it more about them not having an, affi- uh, uh, an affiliated identity? Well, I don't think those dilemmas see a lot of play. So that's all, that's always going to be something where non-aligned is never going to be that great of an affiliation because those dilemmas exist. Um, like the moment non-aligned would become really good people would start playing those dilemmas more often and then they'd have another problem to deal with. So I, I don't think those dilemmas themselves, those existence hurt the affiliation right now, but I think they would hurt it in the, in the future if they got a lot better. 
Absolutely. And uh, let's all remember that second edition was not only was never designed to be played solo, which is why those dilemmas exist, uh, thieves and and droids notwithstanding. So let's move on to our second to these these set the lowest ranked affiliated affiliation number sixteen. This is a, a personal favorite affiliation of mine, and it saddens me that they are so bad. <laughs> Uh, we're talking about the Bajorans, so we'll start with Johannes. Tell me about Bajorans and why you put them 15th on your list. Uh, I too have a soft spot for Bajorans. I, I used to play them quite a bit, but after all the cards that have come out, I still think the the best Bajoran deck is still the old Integrity Speed deck. Um, even though Transport Crest Survivors is around, I, I think you can still only play the, the Integrity and Covenant cheating way. Uh, Bajoran resistance is nice, but for me they just they just don't stand out. They they are not over the top as far as uh, dilemma beating is concerned, and they rely on their events to get the bonus points. So as much as I'd like to see them uh, higher up, uh, I just don't see it in them this year. As long as the Bajorans rely on their discard pile, Greasy to Cot will be their enemy. As long as they rely on Highly expensive personnel. Maquis are going to be their enemy. And both of those two things are out there. They're prevalent. Maquis is powerful. Uh, I just, you know, I, I agree with Johans that the Bajoran Integrity deck is probably their best deck right now. It just doesn't have what it takes to compete right now because of those two main factors. Now. You know, and there's, you know, I guess for kind of the player that's more new, there's a lot of, like that deck that you guys are talking about, the High, the the uh, integrity deck. And there's a lot of kind of harder to find cards in there. A lot of rare cards that you need, and so you know you want to have like three covenants, maybe three bassos, and so it might be a hard deck for someone to just to get jump into right away. I, I I'm I have a concern. It's not a concern, but um, sort of the Bajoran resistance has picked up a couple couple weapons lately. They picked up uh, I'm gonna butcher the name, but it's like Azena Marisa the the comfort woman spy chick, who is the the sort of she drops a skill, and then they picked up the the guy who prevents interrupts. Now, I mean, they still rely on, as Johanna said, having hand weapons or events in play. But are, are they going to turn out to be? Is it possible that they could turn out to be a dark horse when somebody figures out the right combination of these cards? Are they something where you know they've trickled enough pieces where they could be really good, or are they still just too, too bad at getting through dilemmas. Well, I think they're, you know, they're missing a lot of skills, right? <clears throat> you know, um, I, I think until they, uh, until this most recent, uh, I, I think you were talking about the assassin. Is that, is that the, that the one that says intelligence? Like, so they're missing, they're missing some, you know, key skills that were very useful for some dilemmas. And I, I, and I think to a large extent they are missing some of those, uh, some of those ways to get around uh, those dilemmas. The really popular ones, at least. Yep. Alrighty then. We will move on. Number 15. Terok Nor, a powerhouse three years ago, has come uh, almost at the bottom this year. Uh, I'm going to start with you, Kevin, because you ranked them the highest of the three of you. You put them number 10 on your list. What, what's with Terok Nor in 2013? Uh, I'll just admit that the only reason I put them as high as I did was because I really felt that what was below them was below them. 
they only got to where they are on my list by process of elimination, I guess. <laughs> so, uh, ruling council is just good enough right now to put them over the affiliations I put below them. And the affiliations I put below them, I put below them because they have the worst matchups against the affiliations that are at the top. So, you know, I'm not, I can't really speak too highly of Terraknor right now. So, I, sorry to disappoint you there on that, but. No, it's, it's, it's fine. Um, Nate, what do you think about Terraknor? You know, kind of the same thing I was just mentioning with the Bajorans. Like, they're missing some, like, very obvious skills. Uh, I think they have maybe one, Terracnor icon person with diplomacy, and so, you know, their their big trick is to get, you know, a big Krasari hit and then do a planet, easy planet mission and get the rest from bonus points and ruling councils. And so if you hold them up in space with, like, Gomtus for a couple turns because they just don't have the skills to do it, they're, they're pretty much, you know, they're going to be way too far behind to even really catch up and... I, I mean, like, I agree with Kevin. I think they're, you know, I actually put them a little higher than some of these other affiliations we haven't talked about yet, but they are just kind of a one-trick pony, and if you can stop that from going off, you're going to, uh, you know, you, you can beat them pretty easy. I think what hurts them is that uh, there are only so many different cards you can put in a Terraknor deck, and everybody knows what to expect uh, when he sees the headquarters. So there are some things that you have to watch out um Probably everybody who plays the game on a uh, on an average level has a good idea of what skills they have and what skills they don't have, and uh, uh, you cannot uh, you cannot catch anybody off guard with a Terranotic these days. Well, rule number one of competitive Star Trek: if you can't beat Gamtu, you can't win the game. Mm-hmm. So uh, we recently released a new Terranor Cardassian in a Matter of Time Yaltar, and there was a bit of discussion. I'm going to derail us a little bit here. Uh, there was a little bit of discussion about him having a past icon and the Terraknor icon. So, what? What? Let's assume for the moment that that he is a, a herald of opening up the affiliation definition for Terraknor, which has always been limited to that that six episode story arc from the sixth season of Deep Space Nine. If we open that up to past stuff, you know, the Cardassian occupation of Bajor, does that allow de- designers to take Terraknor more diverse and therefore make them better? Or is it just sort of a, it doesn't matter because they're still going to be, you know, one or two trick ponies? Well, you know, I think they will be, they can be a lot better, right? Um, I've seen decks that run Terraknor with a uh, as much as much of the Cardassians with treachery or officer and the, the hologram as well that has treachery and play central command. So if you assume you're going to go back and go to past icon Tarek Nor, you know, those guys are all probably going to be Cardassians and, you know, lots of them will have presumably officer or treachery. So they're going to be, you know, that, that gives central command a kind of a, a new deck to work with. I'd be totally happy if uh, this uh, was used to add some new diversity to Terraknor. I'd have absolutely no problem with opening up the affiliation. As, uh, and as Nate said, if it helps to to develop them into something that can do more than the one trick they can do now, then uh, I'm all for it. The, the problem from a design, from a designer standpoint, though, with Terraknor is if you try to help them out, you are then 
by extension, helping Cardassians and Dominion. Now, Dominion needs help, Cardassians need help, so right now that's not really a problem. But from a design standpoint, you have to be careful, though, as to what you actually start to do with Tarak Nor. If you give it to Tarak Nor, you're giving it the other affiliations, too. So... Yeah, I think that clever design can, can you know, you, you, you could, I'm not saying that we, we, you should, but you, you could make, if you wanted an ability to be limited to Taragnor, you could uh, put it on a Cardassian personnel, but make it spot a Dominion personnel with it, for example. Um, I, I don't know that that would be a wise place to take the, take the mechanics, but yeah, that is always a risk when you have these shared headquarters. You know, the same is true of Deep Space Nine. If you write something... For a DS9, you're giving it to, you know, DS9 Earth or Bajor as well. Number 14. Which is actually an excellent segue into the next uh, headquarters on our list, which is Mouth of the Wormhole, Deep Space Nine. So, Mouth of the Wormholes, both Mouth of the Wormholes in the bottom 25%. Uh, I'm going to start with Nate on Mouth of the Wormhole. You put them uh, pretty low. What is DS9's flaw this year? Well, you know, it's it's kind of a flaw that they've had since uh, probably since premiere. They have a lot of really good personnel that cost a lot, and then they have a lot of really crappy people that cost very little. And so, kind of putting a deck together, you know, you're if you're going for speed, it's hard to include those big people, and if you're going for dilemma busting, it's hard to include a lot of those small people. And so you're kind of, you know, you're kind of in a in a rough spot. You know, I think their best card is actually, you know, going back to you know uh, our non-aligned discussion. I think Energize is probably DS9's best card because you can play it. Like if you get it out early, you can play that affiliation fast because you can make those big guys pretty cheap. But you know, you know, they have some defense uh, against against getting that destroyed, and you know, they can use Cork to download it potentially, but. Yeah, I think they're still it, it's still kind of a hard affiliation because they're so mixed. Johannes, you actually, out of the three of you, you rank them the highest. I'm wondering about that myself a little bit. I think it's more uh, because I also included uh, what I think uh, people will play, and not only in terms of power level, but also in terms of popularity. And I think uh, Deep Space Nine just has a lot of uh, star power guys, uh, uh, characters you know from the show. And that's why I think some people will grab Deep Space Nine uh, sooner than they uh, reach for Marquis or Dominion and stuff like that. But as Nate said, uh, it's a it's a very thin line you have you have to walk there with all those uh, good guys like Esri, who is quite useful with all her kill prevention and um, uh, Bashir and Wolf and all the guys. And then there's small guys you need for the skills, and uh, it. A bad starting hand has often cost me a, a couple of games with Deep, Deep Space Nine, so I can completely understand if uh, the other players rank them lower. Uh, yeah, and and I think, touching on what you said, I think DS9 right now has the most printable main characters. So for newer players or players limited to virtual card pools, if you like to play Star Power, uh, they're they're a good candidate. Um, Kevin, Kevin, you had them uh, 13th on your list, so... Um, do you agree with the others, or do you have different thoughts on why they're not going to do well? Fourteenth on my list. Ah, well, they're 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 low. So yeah, that's really low. Well, just you know, again, I agree with these two guys, 
everything they said about him is absolutely true. The one, but to go more positive viewpoint with them, they are really good if your meta becomes very interactive. If you have guys who love playing Borg Assimilation or Kardashian Capture or, you know, Klingon Kill, you know, this is a great affiliation to go to. The problem is, though, is that you don't usually see a meta ever get to that point where everyone wants to run interaction. You will, you know, there's always going to be a couple people that are pushing the envelope for as fast as they can go, or they're running European steamroller type decks, and, and in that case, DS9 is not going to get it done, because they're not going to move fast enough to mm-hmm. outspeed the steamrollers, and they're certainly not going to be moving fast enough to beat the pure straight on weenie stuff. So, they just don't do enough well you know, to, to compete in a meta, the way a meta's developing. So. I, uh, I always rank DS9 higher than everyone else because I, I gotta say, I think they have one of the most powerful cards in the game right now in Holding Cell. And, and while it's true that, that, I mean, intentionally that card can appear in multiple decks, the fact that DS9 can get it out pretty reliably turn one or turn two, that's huge. And, and uh, maybe I overvalue that card's impact, but it, it seems to me that, uh, you know, with, with interrupts being prevalent for cheaters and, and so many linchpin personnel, Holding Cell could be a big threat. Yeah, but Holding Cell doesn't score you points. Holding Cell doesn't get you mission solved. Holding Cell doesn't ferry your people to their mission. Alright, so that is the bottom 25% of our affiliations. Well, give or take. So let's move on to the middle of the pack uh, with a related headquarters. Number 13. DS9 Earth. DS9 Earth came in at uh, number 5 from the bottom. And, uh, Nate, you had them higher than anyone else, uh, not by much, but a little bit. What separates Earth from Mouth of the Wormhole and gives them an edge? Oh, I, I think the the big thing is the Jerish Inyo uh, personnel. I think, you know, for the exact reasons I was talking about DS9 being kind of poor, that you have a lot of really expensive guys that are hard to get out if you're going for speed. If you get kind of the, you know, a, a nice opening hand where you can... For example, play Promenade School early. You can drop down Jerish, turn two or three, and get those big guys out out of your deck, so you're not having to pay them. So I think there, you know, I don't know if Promenade School itself is the best play throughout the game, but you know, kind of the first few turns, if you can get that uh, engine rolling, uh, they can be, you know, it, it kind of uh, hides the issues with traditional DS9. Also, you know, people can play cadets with DS9, or and so that's kind of a whole different deck type. But uh, you know, cadets are obviously a, have have been a good deck for a long time. Yeah, Johannes, do do cadets give DS9 Earth the edge here? Um, probably, yeah. Um, as Nate said, uh, Garish Inyo is the best guy if, uh, if you want in that deck uh, if you're running big guys. But uh, personally, I've always run cadets out of uh, TNG Earth, but uh, they work just as well with uh, Earth Space Nine. So, yeah, I can definitely see how how uh, somebody would rank Earth Space Nine uh, above DS Nine. All right, Kevin, you are uh, one of the designers. You've been working not not terribly long for design, but let me ask you a question: If we were making Second Edition today, 
Would we have an Earth icon in the game? No. Care to expound on that? <laughs> no. No, I'm just kidding. I, no. Uh, <laughs> it, it, I, I'm gonna. I'm going to. I'm going to like just put out my own design bias. I'm gonna put it out there. Um, I am not a big fan of DS9 Earth, Terok Nor existing in the game. I think they were mistakes on the design, uh, on, on the part of the original design. Um, just this, the, just the, the fact that, you know, these separate affiliations can find ways of mixing together is such a huge strain on design that I think it was a mistake. And if I had my way, they would just get rid of them. Um, and find different ways of getting these two, getting, you know, getting those affiliations to, you know, to mix with each other. So, that's my feeling on it. Um, I don't like designing cards for DS9 Earth in particular simply because of the fact that every time I, I think about what I want that card to do, I think to myself, I'd rather have this just work for DS9, or I'd rather have this just work for TNG. Yeah, fair enough. All right, Kevin, since uh, I know this one is one of your babies. Number 12. We're coming up next to Dominion. Dominion ranked in the middle of the pack here, bottom middle of the pack. You put them a seven on your list. Yep. And I know they're a personal favorite of yours. Tell me yep. about Dominion in 2013. Dominion in 2013 is one of those things where they're probably not going to win tournaments. I'm not going to. Not going to put on the rosy colored glasses and or anything like that for them, but you know I don't think that they're you know twelfth on the list bad. I don't think that you know they just I don't think that they just lose when it comes to how they match up against other affiliations. Um, uh, Johans can back me up on this. Uh, him and I played a Skype game. I, I have a, a Dominion build that I think is pretty good, but I think him and I would both agree that it's not—it's not elite, but you know, it's—it's it's not your traditional Dominion fair, and I don't think that anyone else is really playing with it or has discovered it yet. So, you know, one thing that I think that Dominion—that that part of, part of what it is in my in my mind as to why Dominion does not get played a lot, or people don't think it's tier one, or has even the capability of being tier one, is that they actually don't play like any other affiliation. And that's not just, you know, that's not just, well, what's the word I'm looking for here, but, you know, that's not just small talk, okay? You know, I'm not going to sit here and say, like, well, Marquis don't play like TNG. Like, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is that Dominion requires you to think entirely different when you play them. You cannot, you cannot think that you're going to outrush people. You have to be clever with Dominion because their tricks are so subtle, so very subtle. They're they're they're, they're definitely a chess chess game. game. Yeah. Yeah. You don't you don't play Dominion. You don't even play Dominion with the idea that you're gonna even out you know out out swing people. You're not gonna you're not gonna you're not gonna beat anybody at their own game. What you are gonna do where you're gonna beat them is by is in the little areas. The fact that people typically can't track their skills. Uh, you're going to beat them in terms of you may come out, you know, a turn or two faster than an opponent thinks that you're going to. So, you know, 
five drop Odo is the bomb. The and then and then the here's the here's exactly what I'm talking about. A rock to roll and the G unit leaders, Ramadaclan. Those two yeah. guys are so amazing. And no one no I don't think anyone understands that except for outside of myself and maybe a couple other people. But those guys mess with people so bad. It's unbelievable. And yeah. that sort of sneaky little maneuver that you can do and once you get to a high high enough level of play you got two high caliber people playing against each other and one little mistake can be the game so that's my argument for Dominion so D- Dominion has has a problem that a couple affiliations have in that they have so many different ways to build them and uh, a lot of people who pick up Dominion for the first time Throw throw everything in the kitchen sink in their deck, and it ends up clogged up. But you know, just offhand, there's there's you know your Gemadar speed solver. You have an infiltration deck. You have a Vorta cunning deck. Now there's commodities. Uh, and, and is is that a reason, Nate? You've got them ranked so so low because you have them very consistently at the bottom. Yeah, I mean, you know, they just like they have good pieces, but kind of like you said, they're all in different decks. Like, you know, they have, you know, some really cool infiltration stuff, but, you know, that's not going to work in a commodities deck. And they have some cool, you know, ways to, you know, use Jem'Hadar to get under missions, but if you, or get under, or, you know, get get enough uh, strength to kind of low stack a Dilemma Pile. But, you know, like Kevin said earlier, if you're playing all Jem'Hadar, you're not going to have Diplomacy, and so you're going to get hit by Gamtu over and over again, right? So... They got a. They just have all their good pieces are in different decks, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. Well, the thing about Dominion is though, that you have to learn how to focus with them, and that's why I think people are underestimating how good they are. When with Charlie, and you know this, we talked about this when we were designing, you know, the 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 set that had our, had the brain in it, and that's why that's what I argued to you when we were designing how we were going to help the Dominion was. We had to find a way to make it so that we could really get the Dominion to focus on different things a lot better and find ways of allowing you to stay focused and just sprinkle what little was needed. You know? Yeah. So I, I will concede that the Dominion cannot be nearly as focused as, say, a cadet deck. I mean, well, the, the, the brainer, I mean, the brain, the brainer where it's at with Dominion right now. That's, that's bottom line. If you want to play, Infiltration, you throw in Breen, you know, just to go grab a couple of the outside non-shapeshifters to help move your deck along, you're good to go. If you're playing the Gemini Strength Solver deck, you can use the Breen to make the glue work so that you can find some skills outside of it because, you know, they, the, 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 you know, Breen General, I, I, I Breen Trump. General has diplomacy, you know. Yeah. The, the two-drop brain has a couple of skills that are just absolutely critical to have outside of, 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 of a Jemadar. So, so yeah, Johannes, you had you had them in the middle, um, and, and you played Kevin's deck, I guess, I guess recently. Uh, what what do you see with the Dominion? Are, are they do they have a dark horse deck at all, or are they just going to be too too tough to play? 
Um, I think they're not the easiest affiliation to play. As Kevin said, there are a lot of little moving pieces. The, the two Jamadar that can exclude personnel and cu- uh, couple that with the unstoppable, unkillable Odo that can mess with a lot of dilemmas. If you know how to use it, if you can uh, judge the right moment of when you want to use that uh, ability, when you uh, want to, to get somebody through a dilemma. Um, I think the the version that Kevin played against me uh, is probably um, the most uh, consistent Dominion deck I've I've seen recently. I tried to build it myself, and it's uh, as far as I could remember things. Um, it has its weaknesses, uh, certainly, um, compared to other speed affiliations. But um, what Kevin said, a lot of people don't know exactly what you can expect from Dominion. They they're not familiar with the skills on all the Jem'Hadar. They they don't know whether you have uh, some weird founder in your deck uh, that you can bring in for secret identity and stuff like that. Yeah. So they are very hard to to judge. I'm, uh, I played uh, Infiltration recently and I'm still underwhelmed by how slow it is going. I never can can get a game finished uh, in time, and that's what what keeps me from playing this. Yeah, I I played them at nationals out here recently and and. Didn't I, I didn't win? I won one game full out and, and lost the rest of mine. But they were they were close games, and I, I've sort of cycled back around to. Um, I was making my infiltration decks big, bigger and bigger, and now I've kind of come around to the idea that they should just be small, and uh, um, small and 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 efficient. And and, and um, I, I have a build that I'm going to probably play at, at our regional here, and uh, it. it it may do really well. It may fall on its face again. Speed is the big issue for infiltration deck. And, and one, one other note uh, I want to make before we move on to the next affiliation is I, I think Dominion is one of those affiliations that um, falls victim to the, the card scarcity problem or the rarity problem. A lot of their power cards are uh, tough to find. They're they're in tough to find sets um, that would be difficult for a newer player to to get a hold of, which in in and of itself will keep them. Uh, from being played as much, I think. I, I just have one last thought, though, Charlie, before we move on here. Okay. Um, when it comes to Dominion, if you're, if, if you are, if you want to build Dominion, if you want to try Dominion, you just have to realize you have to just set all of your preconceived notions aside when you're <laughs> building it. You just set it. You kept trying to build infiltration decks that got bigger and bigger and bigger, and I have two different Dominion decks going right now. The one I played against Johans, and then I have a, a an infiltration deck. You know, both of them are going to probably come out during regional season because I don't, I'm not, I'm not compelled to to go after anything this year. So I'm going to try to have some fun. But the important thing to keep in mind is when you're when you're playing with Dominion, is you just have to set your preconceived notions aside and don't assume anything. Don't assume that you know you need to have this, or you need to have that, or you need to do this, or you need to do that, just build it as efficiently as you can, and then realize the little things that you do in the game are what's going to really count for you, not how you built it ahead of time. Absolutely. Number 11. And that brings us to the next affiliation on the list, which is actually arguably the newest affiliation in the game, and another affiliation that plays entirely differently, and that's the Relativity. Now, we're going to be very speculative here because the cards have only been out a week or so at this point. Um, let's talk about the relativity, Johannes. You put them ninth, and I, I don't. I think that's probably pretty close to where I would have them. This is an interesting deck. 
It is. Um, I've just come back from our tournament. We played our Matter of Time release, and I played Relativity there, and um, I won all of my games. So that was. Um, it, it has some potential. Um, there's always uh, non-aligned two cards um, who can, um, yeah, hurt it quite a bit if you um, if you save a lot of your good guys in the discard pile for a long time. But uh, it was very quick out of the doors. Um, I had uh, huge attributes there. I had data in play from turn three almost uh, all of the time. Uh, you can mess around with Kirk. Um, the one other non-future guy apart from Kirk I used was uh, Richard Galen, who is ridiculously powerful. If you can just uh, copy all the mission skills that you need for only five points, which was never a problem because uh, I was doing... Uh, missions that added up to 115 points, so I always had mm-hmm. uh, enough power to fuel that. But I think what what really made the difference there was the dilemma pile. I spammed lots of uh, temporal events and then played a big six coster eight coster pile. And if you can just kill Janeway or Data for for hindrance every turn to grab three extra. And then you can play Janeway or, or Data again, either for free or for one cost if you have an, a spare copy in hand, or for two cost if you use the temporal transporters. Then that gives you basically plus three to draw and spend on your dilemmas uh, throughout the game if you can keep hindrance on the table. And that's how I I controlled most of my opponent's mission attempts by just um, killing a lot more guys than I would normally be able to. Absolutely. Have uh, Nate or Kevin? Have you guys played with relativity at all, or, or, or started working on one? Well, I'm just I'm just looking at Johan's deck right now. Actually, it looks and it looks pretty good. You know, I, I guess one of the things that I'm not entirely happy with the, the affiliation is that I, I feel it's kind of just a going to be an, uh, a deck that kind of revolves around Kirk a lot. You know, because you can play him from the discard pile. Secret identity doesn't really work uh, against that deck. You know, you could just bring him back next turn, and so you're going to get your uses out of him. You know, at least once, maybe twice a game, or more. So uh, it's just it's it's something that I, I think its power is probably in Kirk. You know, I'm look at Johan's deck, uh, and then the the hindrance. I think that's. That's going to be the big thing for them too. So mm-hmm. it's a. It looks like. I mean, just looking at it right now, it looks like a good deck. Uh, unfortunately, I haven't had a chance to play with them. I haven't had a chance to print them out yet. Yeah. Um, and I started a new job recently, so that's kind of been priority number one for the last month or so. So I just have to admit that I don't really have a whole lot to contribute. I have been listening and reading what other people are saying and doing, and it definitely intrigued me. Um, I think that, you know, I'm going to eventually print them out. I'm going to give them a try. Um, I definitely think there is a lot of potential there since we're pulling from so many different affiliations again. So, you know, I, there's there's bound to be some some trick out there that might end up being overly powerful. Yeah, I, I, I do think that it's, that, you know, and, and I'll talk on this briefly. I don't want to soapbox too much but uh um one of one of the lessons that we 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 tried to apply is, is to not be afraid of making powerful cards and it, it's it's entirely possible that there's some some combo of personnel out there that will make the relativity deck um you know an, an npe or a broken deck 
And if that happens, we have a great rules committee and we have a great errata process, then we can deal with it. But I don't think that the design should ever be afraid of making interesting and powerful cards because they might be too good. We tested relativity a lot, got a lot of time on it, and time will say what happens. Uh, I, I actually, I've been playing it, I haven't played it yet, and I have a tournament this afternoon and I'm not going to play it today, but um, the, the thing that I, I am enjoying about relativity is, much like you said, Kevin, with the Dominion, is you, you have to think and play them differently. Um, you know, card drawing for them is so important. To, you know, you almost have to build the deck around drawing cards to keep your hand full for, for all of the discarding you're going to end up doing. Um, and I personally, I think Living Legend Kirk is the money card in that build versus Original Thinker. Because when you, when you can, you know, kill him every turn and bring him back the next, that's, that's pretty, pretty powerful. So. Yeah. I, for that reason, I'm, I've got mine paired with a, a Legacy pile, at least for the moment, to get everybody into running more skill dilemmas against me, and then I'll switch to a different dilemma pile, and uh, Kirk will be even better. <laughs> Number 10. Is Cardassian. We're going to start with you, Jan, because you put them 7th. You were the highest of the three. Um, mostly because I've lost uh, two tournaments recently to uh, uh, one of our players, uh, Cardassian deck, uh, who just plays the Grumal team very efficiently. Um, They've still got one of the best cheater cards in the central commands. Um, and also they have uh, a very good chance of doing a two-mission win with all the prison compound labor camp points that are rather easy to set up. And I think that um, with the new mission, the, um, what's it called, uh, Provoke Interstellar Incident or something like that, Yeah. Um, that can replace the, um, what's it called, Crossari Rendezvous. Um, makes it insurrection proof. It's only four strength more, and you still have uh, a two-span uh, space mission, so you can still fly back and forth uh, even with a regular Cardassian ship. Um, so that takes one one of the weaknesses away. Um, and I think it's just a combination of central command, means of control, which is one of my favorite cheaters uh, in the game, and um, tell to swap out dilemmas. That's a pretty powerful combination, but it's it's got some weaknesses. Um, if you take out those elements, if you can control them, then there's not a whole lot left. Kevin, you had them uh, fairly low. Yeah, um, I think that the Grumal Central Command deck is their best deck. Um, the problem with that, though, is that... You know, and it's the same problem that Tarek Nord comes up against when they try to play with Ruling Council, and that a prepared opponent is going to hose the hose the entire entire mechanic. If you can't get it off the ground, you're three turns slower than any decent speed deck. So, uh, and, yeah. and to me, that's just a it's an Achilles heel, and I, I couldn't rank them higher because of it. Nathan, uh, what do you think about Cardassians and, and specifically Cardassian capture, which is always a a threat for some people? Well, I, uh, I guess just in terms of Cardassians themselves, I think you know they have pretty good you know they have pretty good stop prevention. They have the central command. You know you can use the prefect Ducat uh, in that deck for some extra stop prevention. The problem is they don't really have anything to prevent kills very well. 
or uh, so if you're playing against a dedicated kill pile, you're really you're really susceptible. You know, a lot of them. I don't think any of them have an like very few of them have attribute higher than six. So like a clown guillotine will get two kills every time. Uh, there are also some decks out there, uh, some dilemma piles that do uh, um, kind of like yours, Charlie, where you're uh, lowering their attributes. Mm-hmm. And so if you face uh, what's the the clown one, bitter medicine. It's like a deck that runs, <clears throat> excuse me, a deck that runs clown bitter medicine. You know, all your officer and treachery people they were going to use for central command now are all, you know, wimps and idiots. So it's going to be, you know, that's a hard dilemma pile to beat too. So for them, I, you know, I put them kind of middle of the pack, uh, just in general. Uh, one of the weaknesses I found with Cardassians is that um, so many of the useful abilities are spread out over people who have um, six cunning, five strength, or the other way around. So uh, you often end up with a lot of uh, five strength guys in your attempts, and I have more trouble with that affiliation than with any other of uh, completing a 35-point mission with uh, six guys, because oftentimes I have three sixes, three fives for 33 when I need a greater 34 or something like that. So that's uh, one liability. Yeah, the, the ones I've been playing recently have been kind of harking back to Cardassian's Vold, where you've been playing intelligence missions and doing uh, Tain, and so you have access to some of those high-cunning people, like Tain has a 7, you can put in like the non-aligned Bashir works really well on that deck because there's a lot of medical missions that have intelligence. And so you can find big attributes people in that deck, but that's the ones that Johan's talking about and Kevin with the Gromal team typically you do the strength missions and some of those guys are, that are really nice are, have poor strength. Yeah, they do. And then never forget, you know, classic Garrick is one of the, still one of the best oh, yeah. skill manufacturers in the game. Yeah, he's great. Number nine. Right in the middle of the pack, one of my favorites, and uh, something that was talked about a good bit last summer, at least at North America, Ferengi, right in the middle, number nine, and uh, Kevin put them at four on his list. And uh, th- these, this is an affiliation, where the next two that we're going to talk about, this is a problem, where uh, it, it, depending on how you rank the cards, they could be very high or very low. Uh, so Kevin, you put them at four. Let's let's hear your thoughts on the Ferengi. Uh, the steamroller deck. End of story. Um, so de- define the steamroller deck for us. Well, it it's the uh, the rules with Rega. You just got to get the pieces in place. You go attempt missions. You get a bonus turn. You go attempt more missions. You win. You do yeah. it all around turn six. So that's definitely on the clock for being fast enough to win the game and consider yourself a speed deck. So um, it, it does have some weaknesses, um, but having seen it in action, um, it's, it's good. And if you're not prepared for it, it will, it will just totally beat you. So I think it's good enough to put them forth because... You know the affiliation. There's quite a few affiliations that play that are up in this top this top level that play decks or have top level decks that are not prepared for it. So it's a meta choice, but I think it's a good meta choice at the right time. It's a solid meta choice a lot of the time. So that's why it was good enough for me to be up that high. 
Awesome. So that takes it then, uh, looking at it from a different perspective, I'm sure, is uh, you, Johannes, who had him at 13. Yeah, uh, Ferengi, uh, for me, has the same kind of problem as Maki. Um, they need a, a, a player who knows what he's doing. Um, Ferengi is one of the affiliations where I've seen players who copied uh, one of the good decks uh, that Tyler, for example, used, and uh, they made a complete mess out of it because they didn't know how to play it, they didn't know what to do when. So uh, in the wrong hands, uh, even a, a perfectly built deck uh, can can suck completely. <laughs> and that's uh, that's why I think Ferengi is is not quite there in the overall popularity. But as Kevin said, uh, I can definitely see Ferengi winning a regional here or there. Uh, they absolutely have it. Uh, the Rega deck can can uh, run over the Lemma piles. No uh, no problems there. So yeah, Nate, you ran into Johnny Haleva's one recently, and you put them in the middle of the pack. Yeah, well, I. You know, when you asked me to rank everything, I kind of rank power and popularity and frequency all separately. And mm-hmm. then I'm looking at my list right now, and I put Frankie as number three in power. Um, after, yeah, like you said, after playing against Johnny. So I've played against versions of that deck now three times. I played it against it twice in Minnesota against Nat. Nat had built a deck that's very, that was very similar to Tyler's and the one uh, I think Phil played at Gen Con. And then uh, against Johnny as well. Um, the funny part is that the I had the mo- the most success my dilemma pile or the most success I had against the the that affiliation was when I had the like all consuming dilemma pile right. So it's all non skill dilemmas. And my strategy in those games were just to <clears throat> excuse me to overwhelm Rega with the rule you know so he can't. Uh, you know, so he can only, you know, there's only so many rules you can have in that deck at a time. And so yeah. my strategy with the consuming pile was just to overwhelm him with the uh, you know, clown guillotines and all-consuming evils and things like that. And it worked pretty well. Uh, when I played Johnny, I had kind of a more traditional dilemma pile, which was probably about half skill dilemmas and half uh, non-skilled dilemmas, you know, it was the, the same, pretty, very similar to the same dilemma pile I played at, uh, our nationals. And in three attempts, he had three solves against me. Uh, you know, I think he ragged two or three times and he used the, the interrupt to, uh, uh, you know, gain the skill, or change all the skills acquisition once or twice. And so it was just, it was just something where, I drew my dilemmas and I was like, well, this isn't going to work. This isn't going to work. You know, you know, I, it was a very, uh, it was a very difficult to play against. Definitely. And, 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 you know, they also, they do fall a victim to the same problem that we mentioned with Dominion and, and we'll mention again in a, in the next couple of affiliations where they, they just got so many different things that you can throw into a deck that can <laughs> overwhelm somebody who's not, Who's not focusing? Yeah, you know, and it's something where you, you, you know, Kevin said like turn six, but you know, you can really sit around and you know let your opponent solve a couple of missions, and then in one turn hit all three of your missions to win the game. Like, that's pretty crazy, but you know, yeah, you can do that with that with that deck. You just need to get the pieces set up, and once it goes off, it's you know it's the Yahtzee. All right, that will take us to our top eight. Number eight. Is the Maki. So, wow. 
two, two of our players rank them number two. Kevin and Nate, and Nate in power rank them number two. And Johannes, I know you rank them considerably lower. And my theory on that is that it's not to do with how their power is, but what you mentioned previously about uh, there's really only a few players, player types that will be able to play this deck well. Is that is that correct? That's absolutely correct. Um, you have to know what you're doing, and you have to know uh, when you want to do it. Um, there are so many players who who look at their marquee cards and uh, they don't have uh, that one strategy behind them. Uh, they they don't pair it with the with the correct dilemma pile. And they sometimes you see players uh, thinking, "Oh, do I use my cascade virus now, or do, uh, do I want to play it later?" You should know whether you want to play it when a, when a certain kind of personnel hits the table right away, because otherwise you'll you'll end up going back and forth. That's sometimes how I sp- uh, can spot a, a player who's not yet f- that familiar with the marquee. They do have the tools uh, to to be in the top three, definitely. Uh, I think it's more a question of the player who's playing them. And let me just add one more thing. What I think uh, might hurt the Marquis this year a little bit is that I expect a lot of uh, love for Next Generation, um, also with the new Enterprise C deck, and also more Federation love with their relativity. So I guess more people will stock um, an extra copy of Moral Choice here and there, and that might also um, cost the Marquis player an extra turn. That is some collateral damage for the Marquis. <laughs> Um, Nate, I want to move to you because uh, uh, you, you rank them two for competitiveness and then much lower for frequency of appearance. Um, what are your thoughts on the Maquis in, in 2013? You know, I think they're, you know, if you kind of look at every other affiliation, you kind of need to judge judge it as will this just fall on its face against Maquis or can it actually be competitive? And if a deck... You know, if you're just if you're playing a bunch of high cost people, you know, you play against a Maquis deck, it's gonna wipe the floor with you. So they're kind of the, you know, for a long time they've been kind of the, uh, I don't, you know, they've been kind of the the deck that set that sets the bar of what's gonna be competitive and not. But I think now they've got to the point, you know, you you can play, you can have Amros now who can get all the verbs. Now they're instead of being kind of that gatekeeper to what's the top affiliations and what's not. Now they're actually one of those top affiliations, and so uh, they're very they're very tough to to play against. Uh, you know, you're going to be turns and turns behind what you would be against any any other any other deck. Uh, you know, you can, you can compare it. You pair it with a. You can you know I think Neil has compared it with a tragic turn dilemma pile every so often. Um, I think Tyler. Has paired it more with a like a, a returning dilemma pile, like with hard times and things like that. You know, so they're just they have a lot of ways to to uh, to beat you. I mean, the only thing you know, you know, kind of agreeing with Johans is that they, for an inexperienced player, they're not going to do very well. And you know, there's lots of cards that are hard to find, and so only really the kind of the top players are. Are likely to be playing them, uh, and so they're they're not going to look as good as they do throughout regional season. But uh, I think they'll win pretty convincingly when they're played by good players. Yeah, well, and they've they've been at the top table for the World Championships the last, uh, or at least World Championships, or or two of the three last World Championships at least. Um, 
and they won last year. So they, they just did get hit with a, a few errata recently, but Kevin, you still got them number two. Tell me about uh, Maquis in 2013. Well, when I when I rank this, you know, I assume uh, best build in hands of best player when I, yeah. when I do my ranking. Um, so you know, I don't I don't really concern myself with you know some of the concerns that Nate and and and, and Johans have. Now those are definitely valid concerns, and they're a much bigger picture thought you know than what I have, but you know. From my perspective, best deck in the best hand, Maki are gonna, they're just hard to beat. Because it's the, the guy who does know when to play his Cascade, the guy who knows how and when to time his biogenic weapon, the guy who knows his deck and his percentages through and through and knows when to play his Amaros and pitch cards and when not to play his Amaros and pitch cards and what to go get and why. That's a, that's a, that's a dangerous player to be against. Frustrating Absolutely. player to be against when you're on the opposite side of the table. And in our Minnesota meta, we have two guys who play Maquis regularly, and they don't even play optimum builds. They're not playing the Chris Clark cutthroat type stuff. They're just playing Maquis fair. That's <laughs> so like is the best way yeah. to describe it, maybe. It's like They're not trying to like literally make you cry, but it's still <laughs> really good. You know? And, you know, we, for the, for a couple of years, we had a saying, <clears throat> don't bring a deck that can't beat, you know, they, they can't, they can't beat Maquis. Simply because of the fact that we had Steve Nelson showing up with a Maquis deck for like three months straight. You know, and if you couldn't, yeah. couldn't handle Cascade Virus, you, you just didn't, you just didn't want to play it. So. Well, I, I know. The, the, the conventional wisdom and, and both you and, and, and Nate talked about this. Prior to real, prior to the invention of the the meta mission, and I'm air quoting again, not that anybody can see me, but the idea of these these missions that you're putting in for their ability more than their uh, skills, um, you had better make sure that you could solve all four of your missions in your deck. And even now with meta missions, you know if you can't solve transport crash survivor, you better not put it in your deck because biogenic weapon can ruin your day. <laughs> so. You know, it's interesting, and and I think what Nate said is particularly um, poignant with it. You know, the Maquis have always been that that benchmark that you know you better be able to deal with this. And now that now that they they still have that, but they also have you know speed and power. They're they're a real threat. They're a real threat. They're just tough to play and hard to find their errors. That, that's the only thing that's going to keep them from more widespread play. I think. Number seven. An affiliation close to Nate's heart, close Ooh. to mine as well. I'm talking about our brothers in green, the Romulans. So, uh, I know they're personal favorite of yours, Nate. Tell me about Romulans. Uh, you know, I think they're so I I ranked them seven in terms of power, and we're we're at seven now, right? Yeah, oh, so they're seventh on the list. Okay, so. yeah, so they're they're there's kind of a, a number of different decks that are decent with them. I think the the deck that seemed to be the the most powerful has been kind of the 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 big event heavy uh Romulan build. You know, I think when I I played that uh at our uh, Continentals a 
two years ago now, uh, and one of them. Yeah, when when I was playing when I was playing with it, it was kind of the first time. You know, was, I think it was shortly after Denatra had been released, and I don't think a lot of people had really uh, put that put that particular deck together. And so the dilemmas that people were typically playing uh, at that time weren't very good against that Romulan pile. You know, they had some, you know, a lot of stop prevention with the uh, Karina and the Stooges. There was kill prevention with Ruan. You know, Denatra could nuke the non-skill dilemmas. Uh, and so they had a lot of tools to, or they still have a lot of tools to, you know, beat kind of certain dilemma piles. I think they've kind of fallen off in the last year or so because they, haven't really got anything for that particular deck and people are more familiar with it. You know, it's done very well in Europe. Uh, you know, different people have played it at different events. I know, um, uh, Joel Scon played it in Minnesota, so it's pretty popularly played. And so if people are more aware of what it does, it's not going to you know, catch people off guard like Kevin was saying with Dominion anymore. But it's still pretty good and there's, uh, lots of different ways you can play Romulans besides that build. Yeah, and, and nobody can generate points like them. Uh, so, you you know, Nate mentioned them being popular in Europe. Is that something that you've seen and run into? Uh, you, you put them sixth. Uh, definitely. I mean, uh, I think two years ago we had uh, about six Romulan decks in the top 16 at, at our Continentals, and um, yeah, basically the winner last year looked pretty much like the winner two years ago. So, even though people knew uh, how the deck uh, works by then, um, it was still enough to to get past some uh, some of the powerhouse affiliations from last year. It beat Borg, it beats um, the uh, Starfleet Speed deck. So yeah, I think with the uh, with the back and forth of how dilemma powers are built, um, you you always have to keep uh, things like Donatra and depending on the mission se- uh, selection, maybe assess contamination. Uh, in mind, it can definitely win uh, against a lot of different decks. But as Nate said, uh, people are getting more and more familiar with them, so they might have uh, lost a bit there because they got nothing new. You know, they also do well against, you know, I guess kind of the traditional European style decks where you, you know, just from looking at deck lists, you play large decks with lots of events. Mm-hmm. And so Viceroy is great in that meta, right? Where he might not be great in definitely, certain yeah. speed decks. Yeah. Um, one other note before I, I ask Kevin for his thoughts as, as the player who ranked them the least, I, th- these are Romulans are one of the uh, few, if, one of the better virtual affiliations in, yeah. in that you you can print a lot of what you need to make a good Romulan deck, um, whereas you can't for you know Ferengi Maquis and, and some of the others. So yeah, Kevin, you, you you had them in the bottom bottom third really. What's uh, what are your thoughts on Romulans? They really, it's one of those things where they have the potential to be good. You know, we've talked about this several times already with affiliations that you kind of have to put them in their best hands, you know, because there's a lot of subtle play that's required, a lot of very subtle decision-making that's required. But again, like, when I, when I assume best deck and best hands, I view an affiliation that has a lot of trouble because they have so many different bases that they have to cover in order to win a game. Um, as, as, as a long-time Magic player, uh, as well as Trek player, you know, and someone who 
when I play Magic, I, I only play control decks. You know, as someone so basically a long-time control player, there, there's a rule in Magic that you can't play control if you don't know what's out, if, if you don't know what to expect. And every yeah. time you go into a tournament, and if you're playing Romulans and you're trying to play a control version of Romulans, you know, it's really hard to be prepared for every possible matchup. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of very potent offense out there right now. And it's tough to be prepared for Rega and Cadet and Maquis and so and such. And in my opinion, they're just not the best control that's out there right now because I think Maquis is the best control that's out there right now. So that's why I, that's why I just couldn't I, I couldn't convince myself to rank them any higher than the bottom. Sure. I do have to say, personally, I, th- I think the Romulans have one of the most underrated cards in the entire game, and that's Deep Hatred. That is an extremely good and underrated card. Yeah, it's great against Borg. Number six. I, I mentioned at the beginning of the, the episode that uh, I took everybody's rankings, and I averaged those all up. So, uh, six, five, four, and three, the next four affiliations are separated by not even a full point in score. It's really interesting to me. And, and, and I don't think it'll surprise anybody, anybody who's been keeping track that the top six affiliations are not gonna shock anyone, but let's start with six, uh, Klingons. And I'm gonna ask Johannes to start first. Uh, Klingons came in at five, six, and six across you guys. So, tell me about Klingons. Um, they are still one of the speed decks you have to be able to beat. Uh, I think everybody's familiar with the, um, uh, the leadership security deck that, um, Chris is using and uh, a lot of other guys have, have their own, uh, versions of it. Um, they have cheap ships. They have very good cheater cards. They have a very, very tight skill set. Um, with the, again, with the provoke interstellar incident. Uh, you have another strength mission that is not insurrectionable. Um, you cannot play the sword uh, then, but still it's, it says leadership, security, navigation, and transporters, and then you can get 105 points. And that's a very, very tight skill set. You can just spam out personnel. You have some, some good um, cards that exclude um, uh, you from certain dilemmas like Clack. Then you, have, you can always play bridge officer's test. That's definitely a speed deck that you you have to be able to beat. Yeah, and nobody has more dual leadership personnel than Klingons. Um, all right, uh, let's talk to to Nate then about Klingons. I know that you've played in Minnesota a number of times, and this is this is Chris's arguably his favorite deck. What what do you think the Klingons are perennially powerful? Well, I'll talk about the kind of the other version of the I guess popular Klingons, where you have the the council, where you have the diplomacy missions and you play Kimtar. I think that's, you know, you, you typically those are played with interaction-style decks that want to get those events out to, you know, kill your people, blow up your ships, or things like that. Uh, and traditionally, that's been kind of a two-mission win deck. I think the introduction of the, uh, is it Pivotal Destiny? Is that the new Matter Time card? That's the the anti two mission win yep. one, yeah. Yeah, I think I think that the introduction of that card will hurt the the, the council deck. Um, and so now, you know, I I've typically thought that the council deck was better than the Chris deck. 
but I don't think that'll be true anymore. Um, I think the I think having to get 110 points uh, is going to be uh, is going to be what changes that deck from being kind of the maybe co number one, I guess, with the Chris build uh, to number two. Kevin. Well, first off, I don't think it's arguable that it's Chris's favorite deck. I think it is his favorite deck. I think that deck might actually be the heir to his estate. Um, <laughs> he might have to, I think I wrote that into his will at some point. I don't know. Um, well, I guess, I guess if you name a deck after yourself, you're a big fan. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, pretty much everything these guys have said, I think it's absolutely true. I think... You know, I, I, there was there was definitely a time gone by where the, the council deck was definitely the the Klingon deck, and it's not the Klingon deck. And then there was a period of time when the Klingon, the Neil Timmons Klingon slaughter deck, you know, was the deck. You know, but you know, as 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 cards have come out, as the meta has changed, as other decks have become, you know, uh, out there right now, Chris's deck pretty much has all the components to be. You know, to be you know, a tournament winner any given week, you know, any given Saturday afternoon, that deck is, can, can just blow by all the competition. It's it's fast. It has deceptively costing personnel. It has tight uh, tight missions, tight skill sets. It has diplomacy and integrity for Gontu. It has kill prevention, stop prevention. It even has the ability yeah. to recycle personnel. You know, and I mean it's, all those uh... things. Buying for a winning net. So. It's very easy to play, and, and it's mo- very easy to play. And for the most part, it's it's not uh, rare intensive. It's 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 rare intensive, but it's not uh, it's it's easy to get a hold of what you need for it. For the most part, um, I mean, even like forty cards, so you don't have to build a thirty card deck together. Even a bad player like me can can throw. I mean, I tell like last year, I. I had gone like 0 and 12 at tournaments and I was like, you know what? I'm tired of losing. So I just built this deck and went and won a tournament with it. It's just, <laughs> it's good. It's just good. That's there's not even any tricks to it. It certainly has tricks. It's just fast and, and powerful. And that's uh, why Klingons will, will probably always be a powerhouse. Number five. That brings us to the next one. Only a third of a point ahead is Starfleet. And, uh, Nate, you put them ahead of everyone else, and I know you've played them recently, so tell me a little bit about Starfleet. Uh, yeah, you know, I think, you know, for one, if you're going to go talk about uh, just card availability, I think all their power cards are readily available. Uh, so, you know, I think that like the the deck I played at the Nationals, I don't had I don't think had any decipher card rares to it. You know, I think there was only a few commons or uncommons that were decipher cards. So you can make a very good Starfleet deck with, you know, a printer and maybe, you know, a couple packs or borrowing some commons from some from some friends. And so I think they're gonna be very popular. I think they'll be successful because of that and I think they're good. You know, I think they they, they have Samuels makes a lot of those characters that are kind of Maybe a little more expensive than they should be. Really cheap. Um, you have Archer in there who is a, is a great, uh, uh, deterrent for non-skilled dilemmas. Uh, they have a lot of cool tricks. You know, you can use Lorian. You can use, uh, uh, 
like the their Vulcan tricorder with Devella to empty your hand and then destroy an event to gain a skill. So they have a lot of cool tricks to them. They're fun to play and they're pretty easy to get. So I ranked them pretty high. Yeah, uh, Kevin, you had them lower than the others again. Uh, I know I, I, you again. It's that's not everybody used different criteria, and that's fine. But is the Nathan Samuels build the way to go with them? Well, it is the way to go with them. It, it really, really, truly is. You know, I, I'm not going to sit here and and hate on Lorian, you know, uh, because he's good. I, I don't think that that deck should be where it's at, though. I, I, I'm an advocate of a rattle on that deck, you know. So, you know, I almost assume that that might happen in the future, that that errata might actually go through, that, you know, the deck just... There's nothing, there's nothing inherently wrong with it. It's just that on some level it just feels wrong. And that's fine. Um... So that, that deck can win. The deck's good. The deck's potent. You know, Starfleet was in, you know, my top half, right? Yep. But I just, on any given Saturday afternoon, I just don't think they it, that it necessarily has what it takes to to play against the field, you know, and, and go the five and zero that's necessary, you know, the four and zero that's necessary to, to win all every single week. In, in in the hands of a great player against a, a I don't know. I don't know Soft field or a somewhat soft field, yeah, it's going to dominate. But if you were to have a, a tournament that was ten top flight players, I don't think you would have what it takes. Yeah, I, I think it's generally true that a good player will play just about anything to success. But um, Johannes, the fourth on your list is, and I know at one point, you know, Starfleet was all the rage in Europe. Is it still really popular where you're playing? Um, I haven't seen a Starfleet build in quite a while uh, now. I, I know I played Mirror myself uh, a while ago, but the, the Samuels builds, uh, I definitely think it will come out again. I mean, it's got all the bases covered. It has skill gaining. Um, it ha- has unstopping power. And what I like a lot about Starfleet is that you have pretty much uh, table control because you can uh, really play Trellium for cheap and you should always have uh, graph plating traps, and you also have lustful distraction, so you can get rid of a whole lot of events, and you, you usually have attacking in there as well. So that's quite a few events you can get rid of, or interrupts you can cancel, and that can mean a whole lot. Yeah, and and, and as we mentioned previously uh, with Romulans, Starfleet is very, very, very virtual friendly. Uh, you can have almost no physical cards and build a solid Starfleet deck. Nate, Nate and I talked about his deck more and, and a potential errata to Nathan Samuels in, in episode 33, if anyone's curious of listening to that. Uh, I don't want to rehash it too quickly, but um, would an errata to Nathan Samuels lower this deck's power, in your opinion? Uh, how A reasonable errata to Nathan Samuels, how much would it lower this deck's power, Johannes? Um, I think it would take it from uh, top contender to um, high average. I don't disagree. Number four. And uh, I'm going to keep keep on Johannes here as we transition to one of our next affiliations. I'm going to pick on you because I know you've played this. You knocked me out of a tournament with it. And we're talking about the Borg. Two years ago, the Borg were the top of this this tournament and last of this, this uh, podcast. And then a year ago, I believe they were t- second or third. Someone's going to find that and tell me I'm wrong. But now they're fourth. So they've come down a little bit. What uh, and you put them actually at number eight on your list. What what do you think about the Borg's potential this year? 
Um, I think they are they're still very good. To, and looking at my list, they probably should be a, a bit higher up. Um, again, they are not one of the affiliations that are very very easy to play. You you have to know about the ratios in your deck. You have to to know what you can do when. Uh, they're also sometimes very very time consuming with all the downloading, all the shuffling, uh, all the th- things you can do, all the drone swapping. Um, that's uh, in my experience, uh, something that keeps um, players who are not completely familiar with them sometimes from getting full wins with them. Um, and I think uh, some of their some of their old tricks, um, like the back to basics, tactical disadvantage, gorgon walls, um, are not quite as reliable as they used to be. Um, but they can still make some noise. Uh, Nathan, you put them four. <laughs> what do you think? And then they're no, you're number one for power. Yeah, I, I you know pretty much. Agreeing a lot with you, uh, Johans. I think they're, you know, like as Kevin says, the best deck in the best in the best players' hands. I think they're probably the top. You know, we we talked about this a little bit in the the podcast we had after nationals, but I think they just have so many tools, right? They can pretty much, ad- you know, <laughs> they can adapt to anything, <laughs> right? They're yeah. you know they're they're, they're fast enough to play with a cadet deck. You know, they're you know, you can play people cheap enough to not be too hurt by Maquis, and you're downloading cards with Quintessence, so you don't have to worry about necessarily worry about having cards in your hand, a lot of cards in your hand at the start of the game. So they have a lot of tools to uh, uh, to play with any of the other affiliations. You know, they have great stop prevention uh, with unyielding. You know, probably the easiest on stop prevention in the game. Uh, great cheaters. Uh, they do, like Johan said, they do take a a lot of time to play. If you're playing them, you have to be playing them quick. Otherwise, you're not going to get those full wins, and you know you might be behind when the time gets called. So, uh, they're an affiliation that's very good in the best player's hands. If you're not familiar with how they play, uh, it's going to be hard for you to play. There's no real question that the Borg can be a, a lethal combination of offense and 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 downloading. Um, Kevin, I'm, I know you rank them at number three, and, and I'm I'm sure you share opinions about the, the the power of that that classic Borg deck. I'm curious what your thoughts are on on the alternative Borgs, specifically assimilators and the dissidents. I don't think dissidents are anything at all. Um, I've not seen anyone do anything with them that makes me think that they're anything. So I'll focus. Uh, on the assimilators. To build off of what you guys are saying, though, the board can be whatever you want them to be, and that is why they are so good, why they're usually so good, why they're almost always so good. They can transition from offense to defense in a game on a dime. If you want to get in someone's face because you have to, you can. If all of a sudden you've gotten in their face, you can quite literally turn that around and throw it right in their face by blowing up their device. I mean, they, they can turn on a dime so fast, and that is such a powerful, powerful mechanic to be able to do. You know, they, 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 they do everything, and assimilators most of all, because their game plan is to disrupt you and slow the game down, and then their game plan is to transition to amazing offense. So they play the steamroller well, you know, but just in their own unique way. And the, what a steamroller deck needs to do in order to win is make the game go long. And that's what assimilators are designed to do. So my opinion has been for the longest time that the board assimilation deck of whatever variety you want to make it is the best steamroller deck out there. 
and you can actually make that assimilation deck run in varying degrees. You can run it assimilation heavy and really screw with somebody, or you can make it assimilation light, you know, and it still retains its, its characteristic of being what it is. And that's a deck that on turn six, turn seven is making every single one of your dilemmas whip. And that's powerful. Absolutely. They're scary. And there's a reason they're in the, the perennial top four. Number three. Voyager. Nate, tell me about Voyager and why you put it uh, at number four. Uh, I think, uh, well, they're obviously uh, a very good deck. Uh, I think why I put them a little lower is because they struggle against certain decks that happen to be very prevalent. They, they've traditionally struggled against uh, a, a heavy and intensive Cleon battle deck because they don't have any place to hide. Uh, I think more lately they struggle against Maquis because a lot of their personnel are expensive, and so a Maquis player is able to uh, kind of slow them down at, like more than uh, they would otherwise. Uh, but they're very good, you know. They, you know, the they're a very good deck. Uh, played in a good player's hands can uh, win any tournament. Kevin, what do you think about Voyager? You you put them lower. Well, uh, mainly because of the reason that Nate said, and that's that they have bad matchups. I mean, they have really bad matchups. Um, they can't deal with Klingon, like at all. They have a really hard time against Borg. Really, really hard time against Borg. Uh, they have cheap personnel and they have good tricks, but when they run up against Maquis, they actually find themselves quite frequently behind the ball when it comes to the counters game. You know, they don't have the counters to deal with the Maquis cards, and then on top of it, the Maquis player can definitely put them behind the eight ball when it comes to how their counters are playing out. And when paired with any decent dilemma file, you know, that's just going to make it so that they they become their own worst enemy. You know, so... Well, I, I, well I, I can't, I can't see like, I, I just, they're, they're a decent deck, they're a player, but they're not, they're not a, a decent enough player. One thing, one thing I noticed that's interesting, um, is, is, uh, more than half of the affiliations that have ended up above Maquis, um, have big cost guys that can come in cheap. And that's, that's sort of a weakness to the Maquis deck, is if I can, you know, if you're returning all my guys to hand and I can drop, 16 counters worth of people for eight counters, I can sort of re-equip, re-equip quickly. So I, I wonder, I don't know if that was, I think I'm sure that was a factor for, for people, but it's, it's interesting that, that many of the affiliations that ranked ahead of Maquis, uh, can play big people for cheap. Well, so. I just think, you know, you kind of, you know, Kevin was talking about this earlier. If you go into a tournament, you have to be ready, you want to be ready for kind of everything that's out there. You want to be ready for, like speed to death, and you want to be ready for Maquis, and you want to be ready for, uh, you know, kind of long setup decks that can kind of explode like the Frangie. And so you need to be able to play people fast enough to play with the fast decks, and but you want to have good enough people that you're able to solve the mission. So I think the game is moving towards the best decks having people that, at least have a high cost, but you're able to get them out uh, cheaply. Yeah. Yeah, I guess you had Voyager at three. Um, tell me about about that, and then I want to run real quickly. Ask about Equinox, since we've all been talking about Voyager primarily. So tell me, tell me about your Voyager ranking. 
Um, Voyager has uh, has done quite well for me in the past few years. It's kind of my uh, if I don't know what else to play, I play Voyager and don't care about the matchups. Um, one of the things that uh, keeps me in play as a Voyager player is usually uh, the huge advantage I have in dilemmas. Uh, I usually pair it with a dilemma pile that is focused on six costers and things like well prepared defenses to take out one or one or two key tees, uh, sorry key skills. And then just uh, kill lots of guys. Um, yeah. I, I sometimes killed uh, five or six personal out of an attempt uh, of eight. And then the deck can be a little bit slower. But as the other said, uh, there are some matchups uh, that you have a very hard time winning, that they're an uphill battle. Uh, but that's uh, a risk that I'm willing to take in, the, in certain tournaments. Yeah, so now real quickly, the, the other half of the Voyager, you know, faction is, is the Equinox. And I, I've seen them very, very flash in the panty where they can show up and win 4-0 and and then the very next tournament go 0-4. Are, are they a factor at all here or just a non-issue, Johannes? Non-issue. Kevin? Non-issue. Nate? Uh, if I were to say Equinox only, they would probably be the lower part of the... Uh, affiliation list. They're another affiliation that you can print off all the cards, so it's really easy for a new player to get started in. Yeah, Definitely, they're great in virtual formats. A whole affiliation of treachery people is just, uh, you know, I, I think Kevin said it earlier, if you can't beat Kumtu, you can't win. Number two. The original series, TOS is number two. And I'm going to start with Kevin. You had them at five. Tell me about uh, TOS I, I really don't know what to say about TOS this year because it seems like every every time we try to anticipate what the TOS are going to do, it seems to be wrong because it just seems like they have so many options and so many things that they can do. I mean, they are one of the affiliations that you know we we we've talked about this with other affiliations where you know we talk when we talk about Bajorans, like we got you got integrity deck, you got you got resistance deck, you've got the evil guys deck, you've got this deck, you know, and, and and they have that too. But the thing about the TOS decks are is that it any one of those different builds of theirs could be really good or really bad, and it just depends on when you're playing them. You know, because there was a time when you know the the the, the motion picture deck was actually like the bomb because they avoided dilemmas and they had high cost personnel, and that's what everyone was doing. You know, and then just the weenie assault deck was really good there for a little while because everyone had kind of like, you know, the metagame had kind of had kind of shifted into this kind of mid-range, you know, kind of thing. And all of a sudden, you just blazing fast dudes with integrity and you win, you know. And then all of a sudden, uh, the game started to speed up a little bit and they came out and then all the people started playing with you know, the, the McCoy bounce over and over again deck. And Stonewall, that kind of thing. And then they kind of took over the metagame with that. So you just never know what's going to happen with TOS. And you can't say that they're not going to be good, but you can't really say that they're going to be amazing. And that's why I had to put them at five, is because I knew they're definitely in that top quarter, but you just don't know where they're going to be at, you know, at any given moment. Well, and I think that's an interesting side effect of, of how design treats them, in that they're, they are literally the meta-police deck. They are designed to have the, the widest toolbox 
to be able to to give you the options to to react to what's necessary game to game and and meta to meta and and if you don't need those abilities the ability to drop them cheap can be really you know they're like a speed deck plus a meta control deck so that you know they're part maquis they're part tng and they're they're uh they're all over the place um Nate you put them 9 power level wise yeah so I was pretty surprised that they're I guess number two on on this list I think they're you know they're they're probably their best non-Kirk ability I guess I'd put it is has has been the McCoy bounce um either just to do it once in the beginning of the game or you know once in the middle of the game or or make kind of a deck revolving around that uh particular mechanic and so I think the the introduction of the new dilemma ingenious jury rig mm-hmm. you know i think that's going to be uh really hurt tos uh enough to drop them down where where i had them at number 9 i think they'll be popular still cuz you know they're people like looking at original series cards there's they're easy to find uh even the decipher set i think is one of the easier ones to find the these are the voyages still so they're going to be pretty popularly played. I just don't think they'll be that strong, um, mostly because of the uh, that new dilemma. Yeah, and Johannes had them at two. So what do you, what do you, you you apparently got the prediction right? But what do you think about TOS? Uh, well, I think they're going to be popular just because they are TOS, so they will be uh, very widely played. A um, couple of things I said before about the Klingon speed deck apply here. They can play high cost personnel for cheap. They have um, decent skill cheating ability. Driven is a is a great interrupt. You can get skills. You can uh, gain attributes. Um, there are a lot of, as you said, there are, there are toolbox. You can get a couple of captives out at the right time uh, if you want. You can get dilemmas back. Uh, I agree that uh, jury rig will definitely uh, hurt them a bit, um, but. Uh, Sometimes you can uh, you can grab uh, you can grab and play McCoy early on before they can hit you with jury rig because I don't think everybody will have the three times in this dilemma pile. Uh, so uh, a couple of the road tricks are, are still uh, true and uh, OT Kirk probably will show up every now and again. <laughs> and they can still play with uh, three easy missions and with uh, the Enterprise B. They can they can just do cheap missions and still get uh, comfortably to uh, more than a hundred points. I'm actually curious to see if Egidius Jury Rig pushes people to other McCoy choices. Um, AU McCoy is really good, and and he's 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 usually not played because uh, classic McCoy is always just the right answer. Um, motion Pictures McCoy is pretty pretty good too. Uh, I'm, I'm I'd be curious to see if TOS decks try different McCoys or just leave the original in and, and try to either add more persistent dilemmas because you can still pull them back or uh, try to get them out early before you get jury rigged. So. Well, this might be the time that TOS makes the shift back to the, the motion pictures of that. I mean, yeah. if, if, that, if, that, if this McCoy's been taken away, you know, and skill dilemmas and uh, cost of your personnel dilemmas, end up being what's out in the meta, which I, I think, I anticipate they will be, then, then maybe it's back to the, the motion pictures build again for, for the, for the TOSers again. Number one. Almost universally agreed, not quite universally, uh, the next generation. And I have a feeling that we're going to talk about one specific card 
more than any other. But let's start off with uh, Johannes telling me why TNG is number one for 2013. Um, because it's been number one in 2012. <laughs> um, no, no, really, uh, it's got... Uh, Again, it's quite uh, popular for even for casual players just uh, to play with the faces you probably know best. I th- still think TNG is the most popular series out of them. Uh, they are in some respects very easy to play. They have many tricks that other affiliations uh, can use that we already talked about. They can use Kirk. They have um, the skills pretty much covered on, on the cheap, useful personal. Um, they have lots of tools like field studies they have Guinan for, for jumpstart and the card you you mentioned um, the Enterprise um, it makes them just a, a little bit more versatile I think even if, you, if you're not going to uh, to break the Enterprise as it were but it's just a, a useful tool to have to use whatever you want for it absolutely so Kevin you also had TNG at number one well they are Loaded for bear in 2013. Like, and that's that's not just a pun. I mean, it's, nope. it's how it is. That card is is you know arguably the best card that TNG has ever gotten. And that's you know well, I mean, and that that might even be including OT Kirk. You know, because now that OT Kirk's where he's at, you know, the, this this card is good. I mean. The, the ability to play offense early and then settle into a defensive strategy late game as I think where it's going to be at. That I think what's going to happen is, is that someone at some point is going to figure out the right size of deck, the right mixture of cards, the right whatever, the right, you know, the, the what have you, and figure out how to get enough little dudes on the table and attempt missions early. And then at the right time, start just, I'm going to score five points, I'm going to score five points, and I'm going to start stonewalling you. Just like how we talked earlier, Johan talked earlier about, you know, hitting people over and over again with, you know, draw free, spend free from, you know, from, from hindrance. You know, we might start to see that yet again, you know, combination of hindrance on Vintner, hindrance, you know, uh, the, the loaded for bear, scoring you five points that you can use conflict, or that you can use endangered, or or all these other you know these other cards that you can play offense and defense all at the same time, you know. I, yep. I think that's where it's going to be at. All right, Nate, you you put them at number one for success, number one for frequency, but number eight in power, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that. Right. Um. So, you know, among the affiliations, you know the. They're arguably the only, other, I guess, relatively. They're only the only real affiliation that's gotten any, like a lot of new cards in the last uh, two sets. Mm-hmm. So they're going, you know, people are kind of naturally gravitate towards playing uh, the newer cards and trying the newer things out. Um, they're also TNG, so they're, you know, people like really like that show. So it's kind of pretty obvious to me that they're going to be the highest, you know, they're the most played, and therefore they'll be, uh, and they have decent enough decks out there, so they'll be the most successful. I've, you know, I maybe uh, Kevin and Johans know, are a little more familiar with kind of this, you know, the Loaded for Bear deck that they've been talking about, but I just, I, 
maybe just say I haven't seen it in practice, but I I have a hard time thinking that it, it just it just feels that playing defense has never really been TNG's strength, and so their strength has pretty much always been you know solving missions efficiently and and, and quickly. And I don't know if the kind of the shift to defense halfway through the game is going to help or hurt them. You know, I, I'm I'm kind of been under the impression that if well, if you want to if you want to lose points to do something to your opponent, you might as well just go solve four missions. You know, you're going to have you know you're going to get more points out of those personnel solving a mission than you will stopping them for six turns in a row, right? Yeah. So I I guess we'll see because I haven't really had a chance to see the deck in action, but um, I, I, I'm i not drinking the Kool-Aid quite yet. Fair enough. So let's talk about Loaded for Bear briefly. Uh, it has certainly been one of the most discussed cards since it came out. Um, it, 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 it's, it's probably on everybody's list for targets for errata. Um, Johannes, if your Loaded Bear for Bear gets eroded, uh, first, first question, how would you errata it? What would you do? And then, how would that errata affect the performance of TNG through 2013? Um, to be honest, I really don't know how best to errata it, because I think there are uh, different concerns. The, one of them is that it's just uh, a defensive way for TNG um, to, you know, to know do two easy missions and then just uh, coast to victory by hiding at your HQ and then stopping guys again and again. Um, the other is that you could potentially break it by just a steady flow of bonus points you, you can generate. And that's, I think, uh, where the where really the danger is. Because if you play TNG and, and need bonus points, there are other ways to gain bonus points. Um, not as steadily and not as many uh, over the entire course of the game. But there are other ways. I think it's really more the the potential abuse in there. There's been talk of, of uh, weird combinations of, of headquarters and, and uh, loose stuff, uh, loose points to do stuff, uh, interactions. I think that's the, what's, what needs to be looked at. And for that, uh, I think a, probably a limit to, to once per turn would be useful, or maybe to increase the personnel that need to be stopped. I really don't know. Or maybe have the ship away from the headquarter at least. I don't know. I, I, I agree with Johans that I don't know what the best way to errata it would be, simply because when you start talking about what some of those possibilities might be, you know, then you you start getting into the realm of of what is it you're really trying to hurt. And if we're talking about how it's weird interactions with other headquarters, then the problem is with dual headquarters, not the not the loaded for bears. If we're talking about uh, the steady stream of points allowing you to solve two missions easily and then coast your way to victory, well, you know, you start to talk about, well, why is that so easy when you could either solve a third mission in that amount of time or use other, or, or other cards allow you to do the same thing in about the same amount of time? You know, three ten-point engagements is the same as stopping 12 people from third. You know, so... You know, then, then, then is the problem with the Enterprise D, or is it the problem with rounding the corner being even a, a viable strategy? So, you know, from a design and a rule standpoint, I, I just don't know. I, I guess I just disagree with everyone that the problem is the Enterprise D. I think the problem is just 
you know, lack of meta control in different areas. And the, the problem would be solved by additional cards, additional rules, uh, that, that, that affect other things in a, in, in a, in a slight to moderate way, not necessarily eroding enterprise D. Nate, any thoughts? I mean, I know you said you weren't drinking the Kool-Aid, but if you were an addict, how would you, uh, well, I guess what's, I, what's the methadone for this? Well, <laughs> uh, well, it, it's, you know, I guess I'll kind of, echo what Kevin says. It, to me, you're, I don't feel that the, the points are going to be... The, the points that are going to be used for solving the game and just to win the game, uh, you know, to get two missions and then score the extra points to win, I don't think that's, you know, that's not going to be any... I mean, it, it, kind of, it can feel cheap, but it's not going to be any more efficient than just solving a third mission, in, in my opinion. Um, so the issue seems to be then with uh, using cards that let you lose five points to do stuff, you know, so you can start stocking more of these in your deck. Um, and, and from, you know, just reading from what other people said, it sounds like the problem is that they're recurring interrupts with, uh, I guess, what is it, Operation Retrieve or something like that? Mm-hmm. So... I guess that's probably the the source of the issue rather than the the loaded for bear. I think other than that I think the loaded for bear is probably fine. I I personally would would choose probably any of the other D's over this one because I tend not to play those types of decks and I think the other ones are just better for to win the game, to round the corner on uh, yeah. or to, you know, to get 3 and get some bonus points and win. So I think the problem really is just uh, uh, verb retrieval and things like that. You don't understand. We mean you no harm. We seek peaceful coexistence. All right, let's do a quick rundown for the top... 17 affiliations. Number 1, TNG. Number 2, TOS. Number 3, Voyager. Number 4, The Borg. 5, Starfleet. 6, Klingons. 7, Romulan. 8, Maquis. 9, Ferengi. And that's the top half. The bottom half. Number 10, Cardassian. 11, Relativity. 12, The Dominion. 13, DS9 Earth. 14, Deep Space Nine, Mouth of the Wormhole. 15, Teroknor. 16, Bajoran. 17 non-aligned. Johannes, what's the biggest surprise for you on that list? I really don't know. Um, looking at my own list, uh, it looks like I completely underestimate the Ferengi and Maquis and, and how they will make a noise. Um, but apart from that, I'm, I'm quite happy with uh, how my list turned out with the overall results. Kevin, anything on there stand out to you? Is it surprising? Yeah, how high Voyager is. I don't think they have nearly as much as the, as the list would suggest. And Nate? Yeah, I think, I mean, even though they're number four, I think Borg is, not, if not the top, probably the top two. Um, also a little surprised that Maquis was as low as they were. All right, real, real quickly, um, now that we've run over the affiliations, I want to talk about a, a hot-button issue for a matter of time, and that's uh, multi-HQ decks. Um, there, there's a cycle of five cards in a matter of time that... Uh, 
really dropped the hammer on Dual HQ. Not not making it impossible, but certainly throwing up some some more significant roadblocks than have been put before. Um, I don't want to get into debates about whether we should have done it or shouldn't have done it. That that's sort of you know it doesn't matter. It's water under the bridge. Uh, will these cards um, make a significant impact? in Dual HQ's uh, performance and appearance through regional season. And I'm going to start with you, Nate. Uh, I think, for sure, uh, I I think the kind of the average Dual Headquarters deck that kind of plays the game legitimately, you know, that tries to get a kind of combination of people out to solve their missions, to get 100 points to win, I think those decks are going to be hurt the most. Uh, you know, there's you know, there potentially could be someone who finds kind of the perfect combination of two headquarters to totally lock you out of the game, and I don't think those new cards will will stop that. Um, but I think the, the the new cards will see enough play. I think the mission is going to see a lot of play. I think the Odo will see a lot of play, um, and, and the other the other non-aligned uh, are good as well. You know, if you, especially if you need if you just need the skills, they're not a bad card to put in. So I think uh I think we'll see we'll we'll at least see people not uh, less likely to play kind of the fun combinations of dual headquarters but in terms of competitive level I don't know how competitive most dual headquarters were in the first place other than the arguably broken ones I agree with Nate. The Odo and the Mission are definitely the the, the two cards we're going to see the most wide-ranging play for dealing with dual headquarters. <clears throat> I guess I agree that the sort of, quote-unquote, fun dual headquarters, the non-competitive show-up-because-you-want-to-just-put-those-cards-together deck, you know, those are definitely going to be hurt by by these cards being out there. But by the same token... If you're someone who's taking that kind of a deck to a tournament, chances are you're taking it because either one, it's a little more casual tournament, in which case I wouldn't expect to see people put Odo and the Mission in their deck just to deal with you, uh, because they probably don't want to be playing anything hyper-competitive themselves. And if they are playing something hyper-competitive at a little more casual tournament, then that says more about you know them and your meta than it does anything else. And if you all play, and then if we're talking about it being a higher level tournament, then we're talking about the fact that if you're bringing that fun dual headquarters deck to a high level competitive tournament, you deserve to lose over and over again because you're not you're not playing at the level that everyone else is playing and expecting to and expecting everyone else to play. There's a little bit of a social contract involved here. Okay, when you're playing in a more casual tournament. The social contract isn't nearly as cutthroat. When you are playing in a high-level tournament, the social contract is that everyone's expected to play their best game. And if you're not playing your best game, then you deserve to, you know, you, you deserve to get whatever happens to you. So yeah. at high-level events, these cards are appropriate. At casual events, they probably won't make that much of a difference anyway because it's going to be more of a hey, don't be that guy kind of a thing. So that's a good point. That's, that's really all I have to say about that. As far as the cards themselves, I think the mission is amazing. Uh, the mission is exactly one of the reasons why I think Dominion are better than people think they are. It's a strength mission that goes perfectly into the in, into a Dominion deck right now. 
It has exactly the skills you want, the attribute you want. It's space with two fans. It's amazing. I, I yeah. think the mission is going to have a huge impact on the meta, and I think it and I think it does rightly deserves that kind of uh, rightly deserves it. Um, and I have my own personal feelings on whether or not these cards were needed to be out there or not, and from both a player's and a designer's standpoint, that I feel the way I do about it. Now I'm not going to debate it because it's not really worth debating. Yeah. But you know, and like you said, it's water under the bridge. They're out there, deal with it. And yeah. the beauty about uh, it, it being a you know, living, breathing game is, is that if, and, and it is, you know, the, the, if they end up being too much of a problem, then that can be dealt with either by new rules or new design. It exactly goes hand in hand with what you said right at the beginning, Charlie, and that's that, you know, we can't be afraid as designers to, to, to make cards that push the envelope. So that's really what's going to make the, the game fun, is we got to make cards as designers that, that push the envelope and get people excited to do something because no one wants to just play cadet the rest of their life. So. Yep. Uh, I agree wholeheartedly with what Kevin said. Um, I believe the, the mission is the big one because you don't have to draw into it. You can use it right away. Um, and it's a natural fit into enough decks uh, that you don't have to see it as a kind of meta mission, referee mission, but that you can just uh, use it because you want to use it uh, for the attributes and skills and the points it provides anyway. So um, that should definitely be a, uh, something that a potential dual HQ player has to think about. We're going to wrap it up. Uh, this has been an, an outstanding discussion. I, I really want to thank uh, Kevin, Johannes, and Nate for joining me for the last couple hours to talk about 2E and and what we're going to see in the regional season. Uh, real quick, cl- closing thoughts from each of you and uh, what deck you guys are, are, are most want to warn the community about that we may not have talked about or, or that we did talk about and you want to reiterate. And we'll, we'll start with you, Johannes. Um, Klingon starter with three copies of Forest Birthright. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Forest Birthright's a good card. That's a really good card. Kevin. Uh, TOS playing all the meta missions. Watch out. <laughs> hey, go for the achievements. Go for the achievements. And Nate. Uh, I would just say make sure you play uninvited to get secret identities because I think there's a lot of big personnel that you don't want to have sitting around in mission attempts. That's good advice. All right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you for listening. Thank you again to my panelists, and we are eager to hear your thoughts. In the show notes on the forums will be a link to a discussion thread where you can rank the affiliations and tell us what you thought about what we did. And after regional season is over, we will do a recap show to uh, see how things shake up versus we predicted. Thank you for listening to An Hour with the Continuing Committee. Thank you to my guests, and we... Uh, Live long and prosper, everyone.